Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Guys, I got a question for you. What do you dream of for your life? I mean, like if, if you got a little bit of free time and you're just daydreaming a little bit, like what, what do you dream will happen in your life? Do you dream of being super successful one day, being a successful lawyer or a doctor or maybe a pro athlete or something like that? Do you, do you dream of that? Maybe, maybe for you it's a little more simple. You just dream of having grandkids up in your lap that you can just snuggle up with. Is that what you dream of? Maybe you dream of finally being able to buy that big old house on the lake. What do you dream of? Maybe you say, Jason, man, my dreams are a lot more simple than that. I'm just dreaming of the day when things finally settle down from all this COVID crazy, when, when life just slows a bit and there can be some kind of peace and calm in my home. That's what I'm dreaming of. Maybe, maybe you're a young mom right now and you're just dreaming of the day when you don't have to change any more diapers and wipe any more bottoms and you don't have to bathe them and brush their teeth and feed them and you just, you're just dreaming of that day when they grow up and you love them but they just suck the life out of you. You're just dreaming for that day when you can leave them in a room and they won't hurt themselves. Is that what you're dreaming of? Maybe there's some of you right now and you're watching this and you're dreaming of having that child that you have to change their diaper and feed them and you just long to have a child in your home. Is, is that what you dream of? Maybe, though you'd probably never tell anyone this, maybe, maybe you dream you had someone else's life, that you had someone else's job, someone else's family, lived in someone else's home in some other place. You just dreamed of that. What do you dream of? Uh, maybe there's some of you right now watching this, I'll bet you, and you're looking at this going, Jason, man, I'm way too old to keep on dreaming. Those years have passed me. I'm just trying to live the best I can for as many days as God gives me on this earth. Now, you may not think you dream, but I want you to know I'm certain you do. Because I know there are some of you watching this right now, and you would rather be at the live service right now taking place at Filter Church. But because of your age or vulnerability that you might have, you're not able to be there and you dream of being set free from being trapped in your home, being able to go back to some kind of life, hanging out with your friends. You, you're dreaming of things going back to whatever might look like normal. I mean, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. We all have dreams. In fact, our capacity to dream is one of the things that most defines who we are. It sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom, our capacity to envision something better for ourselves, to dream. In fact, I believe our capacity to dream is one of the things that really shows the hallmark of the fingerprint of God upon us because our God is a dreamer and our God has dreams for you and for me. He has dreams to bless us and to multiply us. Like it says in Jeremiah 29, 11, he's got plans to prosper us, not to harm us, to give us hope and a future. God dreams, beautiful dreams for us. But let me forewarn you, his dreams for you will look different than your own dreams for yourself and his means of getting to those dreams will always be different in the way that you would choose to get to those dreams. So it always requires faith. This morning, we're gonna start a, a sermon series where we're gonna journey with a man who had to discover through his life and all the ups and downs what it means to live God's dream and not his own dream. And you're gonna see a man who had to go on a journey he never would have chosen for himself, but ultimately will find out was the best journey for him. That man's name was Joseph. And his story is found in Genesis 37. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open them up. Very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37. 
This morning, we are starting a sermon series that's actually a conclusion of a number of other sermon series where we're going to finish the book of Genesis. So every fall over the last few years, we've been tackling a certain portion of the book of Genesis, just chapter by chapter, going through it. A number of years ago, we went through Genesis 1 through 11 and looked at the creation account, how sin came into the world, and that set us up for the beginning of our sermon series two years ago in the fall that was called Patriarchs. We looked at Abraham and and his journey of faith of going to the promised land and marrying Sarah, and in his old years, giving birth to a miracle son, Sarah did, to their son Isaac, and we got to hear about that story. Then last fall, we had our sermon series called Roots, where we looked at our ancestral roots and in a little bit of our sordid spiritual past as we went on to Jacob and Esau and really focused in on Jacob. And we learned about how he had 12 sons from two wives and two concubines, which, by the way, is a whole other story. You should go back and listen to the sermon series. There's crazy stories in the life of Jacob. But it all culminates in the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is the 11th son born to Jacob to his favorite wife, Rachel. Now, Rachel ended up giving birth to one last son, Benjamin, but she died in the process of giving birth to Benjamin. But the real story centers in on Joseph. And over the next 14 chapters, we're going to take 11 weeks to look at the ups and downs of the life of Joseph. And we're going to see this story of how he learned as he embarked upon this beautiful journey of living the dream, what it meant to live God's dream and not his own dream. It's going to be crazy and wild, but we've got to start where the story starts with Joseph in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. I want you to read the first few verses with me. Here's what it says. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which by the way is just another name for Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. I had to stop there for a second. All right, so you see there's trouble brewing from the very beginning of the story with Joseph. So you got this, this guy, Joseph, this little punk teenager. He's 17 years old, and he is clearly the favored son. The reason he's the favored son is because he was the first son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, more than the concubines, and this was their, their first son together, and he loved Joseph. And you can see just how much he loved Joseph and preferred Joseph by the gift he gave him, this robe of many colors, now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what this robe was, but there, it's, it's not terribly certain exactly what it is, but what is certain is what it signified. The way that Hebrew term describes that robe, it was a robe that signified not just his father's favor, but the status he had over his other brothers. If you can think about it this way, it was, this was signifying that Joseph was white collar and the rest of his brothers were blue collar. They were the ones out in the fields shepherding the flock. He was management. He wasn't labor. That's what that robe signified. It's one of the main reasons why his, his brothers hated him so much. I mean, just, just imagine, if you will, here are these other brothers of his and there are some 10 years older, 20 years older, maybe even more than Joseph, who's only 17, and he's put in charge of all the other ones. Why? Just because his father liked his mama more. But could you imagine working somewhere, being the labor force, being so much older and bringing the 17 year old and he's in charge of you? I mean, you can understand why they hated his guts so much. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph has the audacity to tell his brothers about some dreams that they're all going to be subservient to him. That's what happens in the next few verses. Keep on reading the story. Verse five it says, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. 
Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, when you read this, you know, you can kind of see this little punkish attitude in Joseph. He thinks he's better than everybody else, and he has these dreams, and you begin to think, well, he must think pretty highly of himself, but you might just kind of disregard it as that. Like if somebody told you they're having dreams that they're better than everybody else, you go, man, you're so arrogant. But this was so much more than just arrogance. Because in the ancient world, they believed that dreams were divine decrees that were declared by God. And the fact that the dream occurred twice in two different forms, that was especially significant. In fact, when we keep going through the story, we're going to get to chapter 41. And you're going to see over there in in verse 32 where you've got Joseph who's interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, because you had two dreams back to back with the same significance, that means that this has been fixed in the heavens by God himself. In other words, subsequent dreams that had the same meaning, they were, they were believed to have shown how certain they were in the heavens by Almighty God. In other words, when he tells the brothers these two back-to-back dreams, he's saying, guys, it has been determined by Almighty God himself that all of you are going to bow down to me. Holy cow, what incredible arrogance. I mean, this guy was dead set on ticking off his brothers, but what's so interesting is he was oblivious to it. He had no idea just how jealous and angry and filled with rage his brothers were toward him. And apparently his father didn't know either because his father is about to send his son on a mission that would ultimately be his death trap. Keep on reading. See what happens next in the story. Verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he sent, them, sent him to him. And he said, now go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, Now stop there for a second. So in this particular part of the passage, there's a lot of really small details that are supremely important. First detail I want to point out is this mysterious unnamed man that just kind of magically appears in the story. Now, that's a very key aspect to the story, but I'm going to explain that a little bit later on. So put a pin in that and just know that that unnamed man is very important. Another detail, though, that I need to point out was the distance he had to travel. I don't know why every time I've read this story, I just kind of pictured Joseph going a couple of hours away to see how his brothers are doing and coming back to tell his dad a report on how things are going. But that's not at all what was taking place because Shechem was about 41 miles north of the valley of Hebron, where Joseph would have left from. In other words, this would take four or five days traveling. They didn't have cars or anything. This would take a long time to travel up to see his brothers. And then it says he gets to Shechem, and he discovers they're not in Shechem. They're in Dothan, which is another 14 miles north of Shechem. In other words, he was going to go some 55 miles to find his brothers. That would have taken about five to seven days' journey. He had to go an incredible length to get them. Let me tell you what that shows me. It shows me how oblivious Joseph really was to the brother's hatred for him. 
he is willing to travel about seven days to go find him. He's tenacious. He is not going to lose sight because he knows he's been sent by his daddy to be the manager and find out how his brothers are doing. The other thing that shows me how oblivious he is is that he's actually wearing his robe of management, his white collar, his many colored robe. He's going over there to show everybody else he's in charge. He's oblivious to how this is going to set them up. I don't know. Maybe he's thinking he's going to get some kind of warm welcome, but he does not get a warm welcome. In fact, what you're going to discover is he gets the exact opposite of it. Let's keep on reading. Verse 18. It says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might restore him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Stop there. So this is not the welcome Joseph was anticipating. He gets there thinking he's going to be in control, and his brothers turn on him. He discovers in a flash just how angry, just how jealous, and how much hatred was inside of him. It says that they grab him, they strip off his robe, and they throw him into a cistern to let him die there. Now, this particular part, of chapter 37, doesn't tell us this, but if you were to go over to chapter 41, verse 21, it tells us that Joseph was actually begging for his life. He was begging for them not to do it. Guys, no, stop, please don't. And his brothers, amid the beg and the cry for safety, say, I don't even care. They grab him, they throw him in the cistern in cold blood. And they just go off to eat a meal like everything's just (laughs) hunky-dory. Listen, I don't know what's going on in your family. You may think you got a screwball family, but it's not nearly as jacked up as this family is. These people were messed up, cold blood, killing their own kin. It was interesting that the the one who came to the rescue, or at least attempted to, was Reuben. Reuben was the oldest brother, and he was probably the least likely to help out. If you don't know about Reuben's story, you've got to go back to Genesis 35 and read it. He has a sordid past as well. He wasn't exactly the, the holy roller. And there's a lot of debate about why Reuben was the one who tried to save his younger brother's life. Many believe it was because he had disgraced his father, and he was trying to get back into his father's good graces. Others believe just because he was the oldest son that he would be held accountable anyway. So he's trying to save his own bacon. Who who really knows why he did it? All we know is that Reuben tried to save his son, or his his little brother, I mean. But you're going to discover pretty soon he wasn't able to do it. Because his other nine brothers are dead set on stopping these these dreams from ever coming true. And and Reuben wasn't going to be able to put down and squelch their hatred for their little brother Joseph. So let's see what happens next. And how this unfolds. Going back to 25, here's what it says. It says, They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And here you see Joseph is now in slavery, taken to Egypt. It looks like evil is won and all is lost. There's something striking to me about this particular story. What's so striking to me is how everyone thinks they're in control and they're totally deceived. None of them's in control of what's going on. I mean, it starts with Jacob. Jacob thinks he's in control. He thinks he can take his favorite son and make him management by giving him this special robe and put him in charge of his other sons. And he has no idea that by putting his son in this place, he's actually causing the greatest pain and misery of his life as he thinks his own son is dead. Joseph, he thinks he's in control. He thinks he's a manager. He proudly wears his robe of many colors. He proudly goes and seeks his brothers all the way up to Dothan knowing he's gonna be in charge. Has no idea his brothers plan to kill him. Reuben thinks he's in control. He's going to save his little brother. He's got a plan. He cooks up. He's going he's to save. It's going to be great. And he utterly fails. Probably the most ironic of all is the other nine brothers are just certain they're in control of this. Not only have they gotten rid of their pesky little brother, they've made a little profit on it, and they are certain they stopped those dreams from ever coming true. And they don't realize they've just put Joseph in the exact place he needs to be to fulfill those very dreams. You know what that shows me? Not a single one of them was in control of what was going on. And I think there's a powerful lesson that you and I can learn from this. It's a lesson that we need to take to heart. And here it is. We may think we're calling the shots in our life, but there ain't no one calling the shots in our life except God Almighty. I, I want to say that one again. I think that one might slip past you. This, this may be worth writing down. You may think you are calling the shots in your life. You may think you are in charge. You may think you're the captain of your own ship. You're the steward of your own house. But let me go ahead and set the record straight. Ain't nobody calling the shots in your life except God Almighty. He's the one in control. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the better off you're going to be. In fact, I, I love in this story where you see just how in control God is by one of the most seemingly insignificant details this mysterious unnamed man back in verses 14 through 17. Go, go back to those verses. I want to reread them for you. I, I want to see this detail here because it's profound. Verse 14, it says, So he, speaking of Jacob, said to him, speaking of Joseph, Jacob said to Joseph, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, well, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, I want you to stop and think just for a moment, just how inconceivable all these details really are. So it says that Joseph, he goes up to Shechem, travels some 40 plus miles, and he's, he's in Shechem, and it says he's wandering in the fields. Now, that, that Hebrew word wandering means roaming aimlessly. In other words, He's completely lost. He can't find them. He's looking everywhere for them. And he's got no means to find them. He's about to give up, go back down to his daddy in Hebron and say, I couldn't find them. But right before he's about to, it says this mysterious unnamed man 
wanders up to Joseph. Joseph doesn't go to the man. The man comes up to Joseph and says, hey, buddy, who are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. I don't know where they are. Do you know? Well, it just so happens this mysterious unnamed man happened to have overheard a conversation of the brothers saying, come on, let's go up to Dothan. There'll be better land over there. And so he's able to tell Joseph, oh, yeah, yeah, I know where they're at. They're on their way to Dothan. Go over there. You'll find them. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit too uh, uh, inconceivable in detail, just a little too coincidental that this man happened upon Joseph who happened to have all the information? In, in fact, actually, rabbis have been teaching for centuries that it's too coincidental. Therefore, that man wasn't an ordinary man. That man was the angel Gabriel. Truth be told, I don't know if it was the angel Gabriel. I don't know if it was just an ordinary man. I don't know if it was an alien from Pluto. I got no clue who this guy is, but I know this for certain. That didn't just happen by chance. God put that person, whoever he was there, in order to direct Joseph so he wouldn't fail in his mission to go find the brothers. Now, if that's true, then there's a pretty shocking corollary realization you have with that. And here's what it is. If that man hadn't been there, then Joseph wouldn't have found the brothers and he would have gone back down to Hebron and would have said, I couldn't find them, Daddy. I don't know where they are. And that meant he never ever would have been grabbed by his brothers and thrown in a cistern. Then he never ever would have been pulled out and shackled by the Ishmaelites and taken as a slave over to Egypt. And in Egypt, what you'll learn later, he never would have been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison to rot. In other words, all his suffering was precipitated by the very man God placed there to guide Joseph to Dothan to find his brothers. All the suffering could have been spared if God hadn't done it. This is the part where you go, okay, well, what gives, God? Why would you do this? Why, why would you, if you could have spared Joseph all this problem just by not planting that man there, then why, why wouldn't you have done that? Why did you cause him to suffer so much pain and misery? Listen, this is a common question we have. Why does a good God actually orchestrate events in life where we have to suffer? But let me tell you, we learn a whole lot about God through that particular man. Here's what we learn. And please hear me when I say this. God is not in the business of making our lives easy or pain-free. But he is absolutely in the business of making sure that every ounce of our pain and our suffering count for something so much more than we ever could have anticipated. Yeah, that's, that's worth stopping and saying again. I don't want you to miss this. Jot this down. You need to know this about your God. God is not in the business of making your life easy and pain-free and, and everything working out well, but he is absolutely in the business of making sure that every ounce, every bit of your pain and your suffering accomplishes something so much more than you could ever even dream of. Yes, God's dreams are different than our dreams and his way of getting to those dreams is different than we ever would choose, but his ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This whole story is trying to show us that God knows what he's doing. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and give you a little spoiler alert. If you don't wanna know what happened, just go, don't listen to what I'm gonna say, but let me tell you, this whole thing works out well. There's going to come a moment where Joseph is absolutely going to rise to power, the second man in the land of Egypt, and the brothers are going to bow down to him. It's all going to work out beautifully according to God's plan. But it had to happen through the journey, through slavery and imprisonment, for him to have that meteoric rise to the second in command. He was the son of some sheep herders. There is no way he's going to be the second in command of the mightiest nation in the known world at that time any other way. I know this is not the plan that Joseph would have chosen for himself. No one would choose 
slavery and incarceration and mistreatment by their own brothers as a means of, of attaining dreams. He wouldn't have chosen it, but it was the plan that was the only way that could accomplish the dreams that God had given him. Jacob would not have chosen this plan for his son. He didn't want to endure the hardship of the suffering and what he thought was the death of his own son, but it was the only way that his son Joseph could ultimately save Jacob's life in the future. And I guarantee these other brothers never would have chosen this plan so that their brother could rise to power. They never would have chosen the plan where they have to bow down to Joseph. But it was only when they bowed down to Joseph they could be saved by Joseph who could provide for them in a time of famine. You may tell what that means. It means that God was not harsh. God wasn't being cruel or mean by placing that man right there in Shechem to lead him to Dothan. God was simply ensuring that his perfect plan would come through because he wanted to fulfill the dreams he'd given to Joseph. It just requires incredible faith. God knows what he's doing. It just requires we trust him. Listen, maybe Joseph's story isn't enough for you, but let me tell you another story about another man that's real similar to Joseph. This other man, he too was rejected by the brothers and it was in their rejection that he was able to save him. This man too had to endure an incredible amount of suffering and pain and complete loss. Man's name was Jesus. And this man Jesus, just like Joseph, had to go through a hellish experience in order to attain the salvation of his people. But let me tell you how Jesus was so much better even than Joseph. Remember what I told you before, Joseph, he, he begged for this not to happen. Please guys, don't throw me in the cistern, don't mistreat me this way. He didn't wanna go through the pain and suffering. But Jesus, Jesus chose to walk into the pain and suffering. There was a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane whenever the weight of the world was on Jesus' shoulders, when he's in so much pain that there's, there's drops of blood dripping off his face like sweat, and when he's in anguish, not wanting to go through with the cross, and yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. And that was the moment Jesus said, I'm willing to go through this pain and suffering. And whereas Joseph didn't have to die, Jesus was willing to die. And he did all that for the salvation of the very people who were trying to kill him, his own brothers. Jesus shows us what the Father's plans really look like. Because you and I know now on this side of Jesus that it took the cross and the misery and the suffering for resurrection to happen and the salvation of humanity. Yes, it was a cruel, painful journey, but Jesus trusted in the good plan of his Father and the Father exalted Jesus so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. The father knew what he was doing and Jesus trusted him and it worked out. And he's saying to you and me, listen, I know you don't always understand my plans, my children. I know you don't understand my ways, but you're gonna trust me. Will you trust my ways are better? This is something God's been teaching me. He taught me this just a few months ago with my daughter, Lulu. My daughter, Annalise, I don't know why we call her Lulu, but my Lulu, she just turned 10 this last week and, and she is such a sweet gift to me. But this past March, we had the beautiful moment, I've shared some of this with you, when she placed your faith in Christ Jesus. But I want you to know, it happened in a way I never would have chosen. This is not the journey I would have chosen to my daughter placing her faith in Jesus. In fact, for the last couple of years, I've been having many times at night where I would sit with her and I would share the gospel with her and I would talk about what it means to place her faith in Jesus. And she said over and over again that she just wasn't ready to do it. I mean, she would come to church, hear my sermons and sharing the gospel and she just, I, I'm just not ready, Daddy. She had a, a great reason why she wasn't ready. It was, it was real honesty. She said, Daddy, I, I think God might call me to do some things that I'm not willing to do and I don't wanna say yes, I'll follow Jesus if I'm not really ready to follow him. Which, by the way, was really pr profound truth from an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. 
But, but I also, I, I would try to help her understand the magnitude and the nature of eternity and following Christ, but she just couldn't get there. Until about mid-March, when COVID was really hitting and everything was shutting down. And in the middle of this pandemic, we were talking about the risks and the danger. And, and she just started weeping one day at the dining room table and just couldn't stand to think about it. She was so scared of getting sick and dying. And, and it led to a beautiful conversation that evening where I got to share with her why, why we're not, we don't have to live in fear because we know that when we're in Christ, that yeah, we might die, but eternity is what awaits us. And there was just this light bulb that went off in my daughter's mind and heart and soul where she realized if Jesus would save me in death, then why shouldn't I live for him in life? And I got to hear her pray this beautiful prayer to say, Jesus, I give you everything. I know that you can save me. I don't have to be afraid and I'm gonna follow you for the rest of my days. And in just a few weeks, I'm gonna have the privilege of baptizing my daughter at the Viridian baptism celebration we're gonna have. But let me tell you how it happened. Not the way I would have chosen. You want, if I had been in charge of this thing, here's how I would have done it. It would have been one sermon. I'm preaching a fiery sermon. My daughter would have come down to the front and said, I'm ready to trust in Jesus. That's how it would have happened. Or it would have been a, a nighttime conversation where I just give her some profound negative truth and she places her faith in Jesus. That's how I would have planned it. But let me tell you why God had a different journey. He chose to use COVID-19. He chose to circumvent my, my profound teaching and my great wisdom. Why? So that I would take no glory or credit for it. I know that her salvation has nothing to do with my wise words. It was the spirit of God moving in her. And I know one day, if it had just been my wise words, she might look back and go, you know, maybe I just did that to please my daddy. I don't know if it's my genuine faith. But now, because it was her own certainty of eternity that led her to faith in Christ, I know it's her faith. And maybe, just maybe, some of you watching this, hearing that story, maybe God's gonna stir in your heart today to place your faith in Christ Jesus and, and go on the same journey. And maybe God will bring salvation to you through my daughter. Why? Because God had a journey through COVID-19 to bring her salvation. <laughs> I'm sorry all of you are having to endure COVID-19 just so my daughter could come to faith. But man, I want you to know it's been worth it for me. This is not the journey I would have taken, but it's the journey God knows is best. And God is trying to show me personally, he's trying to show you through the story that whatever's going on in your life, however painful or difficult or how much you don't understand it, God knows what he's doing with your life. He's in control and he's asking you, would you trust me? Would you let me be in control of your life? Because I'm afraid there's some of you watching this right now and, and you're angry with God. You're angry with God because you just don't get why he's letting you go through so much pain and suffering, why he's not stopping it, why he's not changing plans. And, and if you were honest, you're, you're just ticked. Listen, I want you to think to Joseph for a moment. That there are moments when faith is really hard. I am certain that when Joseph has just been ripped of his robe by his brothers and thrown in the cistern to die in that moment, he's going, God, where are you? I'm certain that when he's shackled by the Ishmaelites, being dragged over as a slave to Egypt, he's going, God, I thought you were going to defend me. I thought you had dreams for me. I'm certain that when he's falsely accused and rotten away in prison, being forgotten by person after person, that he's thinking, God, I thought you were good. But if the Joseph who's in Genesis 50, who realized that God intended all of it for good, could go back and talk to the other Joseph, he would say, hang in there. I know you don't understand this, but it's going to work out. God knows what he's doing. And I think God wants to say that to you right now. I know some of this is difficult. I know you don't get it, but hang on. I know what I'm doing. My plans are to bless you and to prosper you. I know what I'm doing. I have dreams for you, but let me accomplish them my way. It's gonna be better my way. Would you give me control? I think there are some of you here this morning watching this 
and there are some issues in your life where you're gripping on, trying to control your future and your destiny and your blessing and you're crushing your destiny. And he's saying, open your hands to me and give me control. Now, I know there are some of you watching this and you're trying to control right now your schedule and your life with all this COVID crazy. You're trying to figure out how to manage What's now homeschooling your, your children who are virtual learning with still accomplishing your job and trying to keep everybody safe and managing your day-to-day and you're about to pull your hair out. And let me just go ahead and tell you, you're not gonna be able to control this. You gotta relinquish control of the Lord and say, every day I'm just gonna wake up and say, God, tell me what to do today. There, there's some of you right now, you're trying so desperately to stay safe that you chose this morning not to go gather together with the church and the live service, not because you're vulnerable, not not because you're at risk, but simply because you are dead set, you are not gonna get the virus. Let me go ahead and give you a newsflash. You're not gonna be able to control everything. You may have to relinquish control and stop living out of fear and trapping yourself and saying, God, I'm gonna trust you each day. I'm not gonna do what I think's best, I'm gonna do what you think's best. I, I believe there's some of you right now, you're trying to control a relationship. Right now, there's a relationship that you shouldn't even be in. You're trying to make it happen because you think you need it. Or maybe you're trying to control the person you're in a relationship with, your partner, your spouse, trying to make them who you think they need to be. And you need to give up control. Stop trying to control them. Maybe you're trying to control your career, who you're going to become, what you're going to do. Maybe you're trying to control your happiness. Maybe you're trying to control the election in the fall by using social media to get your opinion out there for everybody else to see and believe. Can you just realize you're not going to be able to control these things? Stop trying to control them. Open your hands to the Lord and say, God, I'm going to trust you. Tell me what to do, God, I'll do it. Because I'm going to trust you to have control of my life. In just a moment, we're going to have a a moment to relinquish control back to the Lord as we take the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to invite the band. They're going to come back out here and we're, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. I want you to know what the Lord's Supper is. It's a symbol of us joining Jesus and relinquishing control. Because we're going to eat a piece of bread that symbolizes the body of Christ. We're going to drink a cup that symbolizes the blood of Christ. And in those two elements, what we're seeing is a man who said, not my will, your will be done. A man who said, Father, I trust your plan. And I relinquish control. Jesus even said, this isn't my plan. There's any way the cup could pass for me, let it pass. But not my will, your will be done. I trust you, Father. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to be saying, God, I trust you. Take back control. But before we do that, let me say this. There are some of you watching this right now and I know you are in grave danger. You're in grave danger because you have not given full, you've not given full control over to the Lord. You've given little parts of your life. Maybe you've given a little bit of time. You, you, you've given control to some areas of your life, but the, the whole total of your life, you haven't given control to him. And let me tell you about our Lord. He is not, he's not content with just a small piece of you. He wants all of you or it's none of you. And there must come a moment in your life where you draw a line in the sand and you say, I can no longer control my life. Oh God, it's yours. I relinquish control. I make you Lord, master of my life. Have you come to that place? Listen, you will never discover the power of God and the dreams he has for you until you give him control, full control. And there's a way you can share that control with the world. It's through this beautiful thing called baptism. Baptism is a picture of the old you dying and going into the grave as you go into the water and the new you coming up. And that new you is someone who's pledged allegiance to Christ and said, I'm yours, God. I'll follow you for the rest of my days. I believe there are some of you watching this. And today's the day you need to say, God, 
I give up control. I'm gonna be obedient. I'm gonna be baptized as my sign and symbol that my faith is in Christ Jesus, that you have forgiven me of my sins and my wrong and my rebellion against you, and I choose you. This baptism celebration we have coming up in the Viridian on September 13th is gonna be beautiful. We already have 55 people signed up for that baptism celebration. My daughter is one of them. Some of you watching this right now are supposed to be there because I believe there are dozens more who are supposed to be a part of this. And you watching this, I believe some of you, today's the day you're supposed to say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to give control to the Lord. Here's what you can do right now. You can get your phone out and you can just text the word next step to 94253, just like you see it on your screen right there. Or you can go to filler.org slash next step. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna fill out a really brief form and you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to place my faith in Christ or I'm ready to be baptized. Or maybe you just wanna talk to a pastor and you just give us some real brief information and a pastor will call you today and connect with you and make sure that you have everything you need to take the step of faith and give control to the Lord. But I believe you need to take this step because life is ready to change for you if you'll just let go and say, God, I give you control. Will you do it? Next step to 94253 or filler.org slash next step. Take the step of faith today. There's some of you been watching this week after week after week and you keep thinking, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'll get there. And he's saying, no, today. Today's the day that you do it. So I wanna encourage you to take that step of faith. Let me say this, there are many of you watching this, you've already taken that step of faith. You've already declared that the Lord is yours, you've been baptized, now it's time for you to take the Lord's Supper. So we're gonna have a song of preparation. We're gonna speak about how the Lord is our God and, and some of you can go get the Lord's Supper supplies that you need and bring them back. But let me remind you, when we take this Lord's Supper, we are saying, your will, God, be done. Not my will, your will be done. So I wanna encourage you, prepare your heart through this song. Get the supplies ready. And when the song's over, I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper. I pray you'll get yourself ready.